So here's the thing, entrepreneurs, leaders, salespeople, we all want to create consistent, repeatable, and scalable ways to grow our business and our income. And we want to do it better, faster, and more seamlessly. Why? So we can actually enjoy our lives, take vacations, and spend the quality time that we want with the people that we love. How do we do all this without spending a fortune or running ourselves ragged? That's the big question, and this show is dedicated to the answer. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, you know, if you're following my content, which I assume you are, you probably remember a few weeks ago, I had the chance uh, to do a quick video interview with Steve Azonian, CEO of Wilston Financial Group, uh, also the lead director of Lending Tree. Uh, I would argue that there's, there's few people in this industry that have worked so broadly and narrowly in our industry to really understand housing at its core. So I'm super excited to have him on my podcast today. We're gonna have a real lively discussion about real estate before COVID, during COVID, after COVID, and some of the changes that someone like Steve can see from an inside and outside perspective. So Steve, first and foremost, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, absolutely appreciate it. I know you're out in, uh, out in the desert. Uh, I'm here at the beach. You know, this is the new way that we meet, my friend. You know, we're Zooming every day. Well, you know what's really great about this is Zoom and Skype have been around for a while, you know, Tom. And now, finally, I think it has sunk in with people that communicating in a more sort of pervasive way of, of using digital technology other than photos and video tours, there's a way to communicate with people that where you can really get close to people and make them feel part of what's going on. I agree 100%. I know all my coaching clients know we've been using Zoom for three and a half years in our coaching sessions. So many of them were able to just flip the switch and say, oh, Zoom coaching session, Zoom listing appointment, Zoom buyer consultation. So we've seen, we've seen a lot of great adoption, certainly. But we're getting ahead of ourselves, Steve. I think it'd be important for the people listening to this, maybe that, that they probably used one of the brands that you have run. So, so take us back 35 years. You, you, finish, you, know, you finish college, you jump right into real estate, and just give us kind of high level your career path so people understand when I say there's not many people that have the depth that you have. So they understand why I'm saying that. Give them context for your background. Sure, sure, Tom, I will. Um, grew up in Chicago, went to work for Chicago Title and Trust while I was uh, in undergrad and ended up uh, going to grad school uh, while I was at Chicago Title and I got rotated throughout the company. So I learned about transaction management very early on. And if you think about it, the title companies have been transaction managers like forever. And so a lot of people talk about the, the holy grail of transaction management. That's really what closing settlement service companies do. Um, but I met a guy while I was at Chicago Title. He was actually sort of like a client of mine who was a large broker in the Chicago area named Joe Hanauer, who owned Thorson Realtors. Yep. And Joe ended up being acquired um, by Coldwell Banker and moving out to Newport Beach in Southern California to become uh, the CEO of Coldwell Banker. And I came out shortly after Joe and joined Coldwell Banker and worked with Joe and others to build Coldwell Banker into a national company. And I know how well you, you know Joe and you, sure. you confide in him also with, with things about the industry and Joe's been a mentor of mine also. So one thing led to another, worked my way around Coldwell Banker for about eight years and then was approached by Prudential uh, 
at the time that they wished to acquire a national real estate operation. And we ended up acquiring Merrill Lynch Realty and Merrill, Merrill Lynch Relocation. And I went to work for Prudential Real Estate as the COO. And we uh, not only acquired Merrill Lynch Realty, but we built it up to about 45,000 sales associates, 1,600 locations, lots of sales volume. And we also had the second largest corporate relocation company in the world in Prudential Relocation. And we were buying about 25,000 homes a year um, from transferees. And, and having company-owned franchising and the corporate relocation business gives you a good holistic view about acquiring, carrying, and disposing of properties. And so I learned a lot about the entire real estate process um, during those years. And then what happened was in the mid-90s, if you think about it, it was the mid-90s where the internet suddenly appeared on the scene in real estate. Yeah. So for probably longer than we can remember, for 80, 90 years, everything was just done in a similar fashion. You know, the real estate contract was about this thick and everything was manual. And all of a sudden, we were starting to publish listings online and people were able to get information that previously was held by an agent through an MLS book. And the only way a consumer would know what was basically on the market was to get with the agent who had the book or go out and look for yard signs in front of lawns, but you still had to get in touch with the agent to make sure you knew what the listing price was and so forth. So the fundamental change that took place in the mid nineties was dramatic. And I called it the revolution was coming in real estate, but I was a bit early in coining it that because it took a while for things to catch on. But if you look at 1995 to today, it's been radical, it's been disruptive, and there's been a huge amount of change. And of course, the change all started with the major portal wars that took place in the mid to late 90s. And during the formation of Realtor.com, the fight was against Microsoft and Yahoo and AT&T and people who no longer are at the forefront of this. So what happened was <clears throat> I was asked by um, NAR and, and uh, some of the people that had formed the strategy around Realtor.com. I had been part of a strategy planning committee around this. And we decided that Realtor.com was going to be the industry's position to make sure that realtors were not disintermediated from the process. And so when we began Realtor.com, it was a real fight just to get listings online. And it was a listing war. It was who could have the most listings, the deepest content, and therefore consumers would come to the site. And so I went in as the CEO of Realtor.com. We fought Microsoft and Yahoo. We won those battles and Realtor.com became number one. But I, I left after about three and a half years and one of the reasons I left is it, it was hard to get at that time the National Association of Realtors and the Realtor community to really understand that they needed to be broader than just the Realtor community on Realtor.com. That it was about rentals. It was about uh, new homes. It was about um, uh, homes that were by owners. Sale by owners. Yeah. And you really needed to give the consumer what they wanted, which was an, a, an, an ability to see everything that was available. So anyway, um, at that point, I left. Steve, I got to ask you first so people get context, right? You were, you were there during some very 
critical years of Realtor.com. Kind of make it or break it. Acquire your competitors, similar to what we all saw Zillow do with Trulia. But you left, and, and I think what people don't really have context for, so I'd love you just to shed a little light and then show them what you did next, is that back in the day, as I understand it, you had seven or 800 people that were running all these associations and boards that were making decisions for realtor.com, even though you were the CEO. Help people understand that. I mean, am I, am I accurate in saying that? Um, yeah, in a way you are. Here, I, I can talk about that real quickly. Sure. So you wanna pick up from there? Yeah. Okay. So back when we, we started realtor.com and there was this chase for listings, we had an interface with the MLS industry, which of course at that time was 850 MLSs. So we literally hired 850 engineers who would take data every night in whatever form that the MLSs could throw it at them. Yeah. And of course it was different from every MLS. The delta yeah. between the most technologically competent MLSs and the bottom was huge. So we had to fight the fight with the muscle of being associated with the MLSs and working with them, but on sort of the level that they could actually deliver the data. And, and that was very difficult. The other thing is that the NAR board is a very large board. And even though there's an executive committee, navigating through the politics of NAR was a very difficult thing to work with. Right. And there was a lot of struggle about Realtor.com's place in the Realtor life stream of what was going on. And we had to convince them that it was more important to create a beachhead than it was to worry about the politics. And so eventually we overcame HomeAdvisor, we overcame Yahoo Real Estate, but what was not fully comprehended at the time was the breadth and depth of a World Wide Web and the need for information to be transparent and empowered to the consumer in a way where they got everything they wanted. And yeah. so Trulia came along. I ended up on the advisory board of Trulia and we built Trulia into a very preferred consumer destination. And then Zillow came along with a Zestimate and a PR and marketing framework. And the industry then decided it was okay to let its listings go pretty much everywhere. And the syndication of those listings grew Trulia and it grew Zillow. And all of a sudden Realtor had two big competitors, both of them leapfrogged Realtor and then Zillow bought Trulia. So today you have Zillow slash Trulia and you have Realtor. And Realtor's still a great place, a great site, probably the most integrated with the MLSs by far. The quality and depth of information is great. But if you look at consumer traffic, they're going to the marketing king and the place where you get the sort of the broadest information possible. And so if you take a look at what's transformed residential real estate and the way the consumer interacts with it, Clearly, those portal, portal wars were the beginning of the overall battle that's now evergreen to draw consumer eyeballs and then deliver them to people who can service them and, quite frankly, monetize them. 100%. So go back just for, for context. You were going down this path of your, of your legendary you know, history in this business. And you know we, we can go into each one of these. And I have a whole bunch of questions I'm going to ask. So the people that are listening... Uh, you know, do know this. Steve is an advisor to me. He is someone that I've turned to 
uh, for t you know tough questions on the industry, for my own business, uh, leadership advice. So you know this guy is really deep. So kind of finish up sort of the fast version of what led you to where you are today, and then let's start digging into all these issues. Sure. So so as as I departed from Realtor.com, got involved with Trulia. <clears throat> I also decided that I needed to broaden my understanding of what I call the home ownership industry. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, when a consumer goes through the transaction, they're not focused just on the agent or just on the brokerage company or just on the title company or on the appraisal or whatever. They see it as a holistic transaction, which is kind of difficult to understand and get through when you don't do it every day. Yeah. So in order to understand how all the pieces fit together, I was fortunate enough early on to be in the title space, the relocation space, the, the residential brokerage space, and I needed to spend some time in the lending space, and I went to work for Bank of America, and I was the national home ownership executive for the consumer finance group, which included home equity lending and first mortgages. And we were doing billions of dollars in loan originations and, and doing joint ventures with builders and realtors. And that gave me some real depth and experience to see how the mortgage process really interfaced and fit in and where some of those challenging points were of making all the puzzle pieces fit together. And so spent some time with Bank of America, living in Laguna Beach, California and traveling to Charlotte. It's not something you wanna do every week. No. So that, last, that sort of lasted for a while. I didn't do it every week, but, but it just got a little tough to continue to do that. And um, I was asked to be on the board of uh, LendingTree when it went public in 2008. And I ended up also joining the board and going into the company and at one point running uh, realestate.com and dealing with both the transaction companies of real estate and our lending group because we actually owned a loan company back at that time where we were a loan originator. Um, in fact, we had bought a company in Southern California right down the street from your old office called the Home Loan Center. Yep. So in, in, during my time in the lending tree, what I learned by being in the company was how to generate traffic from consumers, how to market to them, generate traffic, and then stitch it together between the real estate community and the lending community and, and make more sense of delivering the consumer something that would be more transparent and more empowering in terms of choice and an ability to say, here's what I need and want because of my own personal situation, which we have to always respect. Yeah. I then also ended up um, you know, joining uh, some boards like a Realty Track and Adam Data and Inside Real Estate and uh, going to WFG. Uh, which is um, owned by Golden Gate Capital, ended up doing some portfolio work uh, uh, and on the board level and then coming into the company um, to work day to day on taking the company to a billion dollar status and working on the transaction to the consumer. And we've done a lot with technology and created a technology company in order, in order to do that. And today I'm also involved with a global mobility company relocation company that I've been on the board of for a number of years. So I think all the listeners can get why, you know, having, having someone like Steve on the podcast and certainly for me as an advisor is such an advantage because, you know, just a few weeks ago, he and I were chatting and I'm like, Steve, what do you think is the biggest problem facing the industry right now? And he came out of left field and said, 
the problem we're going to have is we don't have enough states that have remote notaries. And I was like, I didn't even, I mean, it, it didn't, I didn't even think of that. And now, Steve, you know, you've, uh, you know, because of you and, and others that are making this movement, I think at that time we were at 17 or 18 states. And I heard recently we're now at 23 states in the U.S. that can now do a remote notary. Yeah, that's right, Tom. And there's some national legislation that's being proposed. One of the difficulties is that even if we get the national legislation uh, passed through, we still have to make sure that the capabilities technologically to do it are there. And we, get the, we need to get the notaries trained. But remote online notarization is occurring every day now. Um, and it's actually working very well. There are three or four key platforms where this is occurring on. And what we really need to do is to continue to push while we're in this state of affairs to make sure these things take hold. So an example I would use is just like with Zoom or Skype or, or Blue Jeans or, or Meetup. This is the time for these things to, to become permanent because they will make a difference in how effective and efficient our business is and how well we can communicate with consumers. And that's one of my messages to all of the people that that work with you. I know how hard you've been pushing them to use video and yeah. to communicate through these digital mediums. People are going to want and desire that more than ever. And I think people are having fun right now with Zoom. Yes. I know through things we're doing socially, my wife and I with friends and, you know, talking to the grandkids and having little parties on a Friday night and, and just making it become part of our lives is what's going to make it easier for our industry to do business when people want to be empowered, they want the transparency, and yet they're not going to want to be out there touching a lot of doorknobs, shaking a lot of hands, hugging a lot of people. Those days are going to be over at least for a while. So let's, let's talk about this. You're one of the rare people I can ask this question to. So, you know, you hear me talk a lot about BC, DC, AC before COVID, during COVID and after COVID. Um, from your perspective, what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes the industry has made so far during COVID? Well, I think one of the uh, biggest mistakes is, is everybody sort of panicked right away and said, oh my God, we're out of business. We can't, we can't do deals. We can't, you know, talk to people. We can't touch people. And, and I think what we've been doing for years now is slowly getting to the point where we have these vehicles for participation amongst all the participants in the transaction to actually interface on digital platforms together. So when you look at the search process, we've put virtual tours in, we've, we've yep. put a lot of information online. Now it's up to the agents and the lenders to connect with consumers in a digital format at that point of time at the search level, right? So yep. far, all we did, yes. we put up photos and people came and if there weren't photos, they didn't like it. If there were photos, it was better. Then we did virtual tours and then we were doing 3D virtual tours and we keep getting deeper. But the connection should be with the consumer at the point of advising them, giving them research and educating them while they're doing their search work. So just throwing up school information isn't good enough. You need to come online. There should be a Zoom, a Zoom button on every listing where they can Zoom right to you. You can do a Zoom meeting on your, on your phone. You could be anywhere. So, so why not be able to immediately connect with the consumer and not just do a chat box, but actually come on and have a good, effective, uh, communicative session with the consumer off. Yeah. So Steve, I got I to gotta interrupt. 
why hasn't the industry, like whether it's an individual brokerage or one of the portals or one of the mortgage companies, why hasn't somebody already done this? Because it just, it seems like common sense today that you would get the consumer right there in the moment and be able to answer questions. You know, Tom, there, there has been a struggle to do this for a long time because even at Realtor.com, there were times where we'd be accused that, hey, you got all the listings, but I don't hear from anybody. I don't, I don't get the leads. Yeah. And then we put 800 numbers on the yard signs and all of a sudden the leads appear. Yeah. So I, I think this disconnect still, you know, is getting solved for because we tend to do things the way we've always done them and getting people to change and adapt to new ways of doing things is not easy. And you need both parties to do that. Yeah. So now that you're getting people comfortable with two way communication online for a, a high variety of things. I mean, think about car dealers. They're selling the car through zoom yep. today and yep. they're delivering it to your driveway. Yes. Why not? And by the way, you know, most consumers don't care if the car comes from Timbuktu or from all, but they just want a good experience and, and it's being delivered by some car dealers now, whereas others have basically closed down because of what's happened with the virus. Yeah. So I think in the real estate space, what happened was it's been evolutionary instead of revolutionary. And I think that dial's been cranked up now because of the pandemic. And so now everything is fast forwarding and you're going to see the innovation increase exponentially during this process because the really good, creative, smart agents and brokers and lenders who get it and title companies, they're on it right now. And by the way, they're seeing newfound efficiencies. They're seeing better quality of service delivery in some cases because of transparency and communication. So these are good things happening because of this. They're not really workarounds, they're new ways of doing business. So back on the question of biggest mistakes the industry has made and maybe the lessons, I'm curious, like certainly that's an obvious one. And I mean, at least it feels obvious. Um, I, I wanna ask another question about that first and then I'm gonna hit you another mistake question. Um, who do you think is, is it the agent? Is it the brokerage? Is it the MLS? Is it the, is it NAR? Cause I don't think it's the consumer that's resisting any of this. No, no, uh, it, it's not the consumer. And I think you can put the consumer in, into different categories, depending upon, you know, what they want, where they live, you know, mm -hmm. how they want to interact. I think you always have to meet consumer demand on their terms. Yep. But, but the point is the variability of what you can do for them today, the elasticity and what you have to offer and how you interface is so great that there's no one that you can't serve if your game is on. Yeah. Your game has to be on because you have to take responsibility for getting educated. You have to take responsibility of structuring your business around what's available. And then you have to go execute and deliver and market the hell out of out of who you are and what you can do. And by the way, I think that is another thing that was not being done before COVID, which now is starting to be done, which is agents are saying, wow, I need to tell the consumer how digital I am and yeah. how safe I am. Yeah. And I think this promotion of how I can do a transaction going forward and how safe I can make that experience becomes paramount in how I market my capabilities now. That, that's a change. I agree. And, and I could validate that by telling you, you know, now six weeks into pivot and training, you know, thousands and thousands of agents all over the world, the just sold card is no longer something we even look at. Now it's the, how we did it card. 
it's the how we did it video how I was able to navigate buyer, seller, virtual, everything, get the property sold. The buyer never even saw the house, you know, never stepped into the home and yet bought it. Like we know those transactions are happening every day, safely, correctly. And yet some agents aren't aware of that. So like that is the new method of marketing that shows your degree of separation. But Steve, I want to go back. I want to go back to another mistake in the industry and, and you have terrific, insight on this because you mentioned earlier you were buying 25,000 houses a year with your relocation company so in your mind like how badly did the industry miss iBuyer and where do you think it goes from here well the iBuyer concept is not new in the sense that the relocation industry 40 45 years ago really uh, shepherded you know iBuying through corporations versus ind individuals um, and a lot of lessons were learned through that experience. And the most important lesson learned is that you have to clearly understand what you're up against in a seasonal and cyclical business that once in a while has major hits to it in terms of what may happen to transaction volume and or prices. Yep. So if you take a look historically at price fluctuation, you will find periods where prices drop 20, 30% in major markets. So if you're going to buy homes from people and you're not going to be able to sell them quickly in an up rising market, you're going to have to have a spread to work with between the buy and the sell that accommodates for what may happen. And I think what the reality of that is now been set in by the pandemic which may seem like a very unusual event, which it is, but if you take a, a deep real estate recession, it's the same kind of effect, where all of a sudden, I now have homes that may, and we don't have this yet, we don't have depreciation going on, I don't believe so. I think listing prices have held up, transactions are still happening, but, but what can happen to an iBuyer when prices start dropping in a market is you get caught where your carrying cost and the disposition cost can eat you alive. So I think the iBuyers were smart to go on hold and to reevaluate what this really means. Because if you're working with small spreads, this is not a good market to be working with small spreads in as it relates to the carrying cost most appropriately. So even if you can hold list price stable and maybe get the same amount for the home, post-COVID versus pre-COVID, you still have a problem because now your carrying costs are rising and you're building inventory and that takes more manpower, it takes more cost to keep the homes alive, and now you're spending more time trying to market the home. Hey, it's Tom Ferry. Question, what's your favorite social media platform? Are you big on Insta? Do you love to tweet? No matter where you answer, I'd love for you to connect with me there. All you gotta do is just type in at Tom Ferry and follow and let's you and I connect. I wanna be able to deliver the right content, the right ideas, the ways to help you grow your business, stay fired up, keep moving, be in action and run plays that work in the platform that matters most to you. So subscribe and I'll see you there soon. Let's talk a little uh, AC right now after COVID, right? No one knows when this is going to end per se. Uh, there's a lot of talk, you know, state by state, as I'm sure you're paying attention to of, you know, what states are sort of metaphorically going to turn the lights back on at 25%, 50%, 75%, whatever that number is. Um, I think the AC plan going forward is probably going to be the most important plan for brokers and agents to be paying attention to. 
and just with your depth of experience, if you could, if you could speak broadly to what are the three, four or five things agents and brokers should be paying attention to or doing in preparation for AC and then during AC. Okay. So in preparation for AC, what we know is that social distancing is paramount in people's minds. Yep. So I think even as things start to get back to normal and they tr start to transition, um, it will depend on the magnitude of the virus and the market, you know, that people reside in, obviously, because some are more stark than others. But the bottom line is that social distancing has become an important point in our lives. And I think that agents and brokers and lenders are going to have to all figure out how to make social distancing work. There are still people who are going to want to go out and look at homes. So what are you gonna do? You're gonna to have to either ask them to be in their own vehicle or you're gonna to have to promote that your vehicle is sanitized before they get in it. Yeah. You're gonna to, you're gonna to have to bring them to a home. You're gonna to have to get to that home and you're gonna to have to open every door in the home and make sure they don't have to touch doorknobs and, and, and do things that they typically would have done in the past. You're not gonna be able to just say, hey, uh, I'm gonna open the door, just take a walk around and you know, I'll be on the phone out front uh, when you're done. Those days are gone. Yeah. So I think people need to create a list for themselves of those things that are relevant to related to social distancing that matter to people because people will want to know they're working with a professional who's thinking about their safety first and that they're prepared to handle social distancing. The second thing is that technology is going to play a big role in how we move forward. And that ranges from during the search process, the things we were talking about, down through working with a company where you can open escrow and you know that that is done in an efficient digital manner, eliminating paper, where you know that their privacy and their security protocols are totally locked down because the more you use digital technology, the bigger the risk becomes for fraud and for terrorists to come in and try to disrupt the transaction by basically stealing money. We move around a lot of money in, in this business and we have to protect it. And that's up to the consumer, the realtor, the lender, and the title company, because everybody's sort of touching this framework of how money moves around. And we have to be very careful about things like phishing and people coming in with fraudulent emails and basically redirecting money to places it shouldn't go. Now that's been a problem, but that yes. problem gets, you know, sort of exponentially uh, a bigger challenge as we move to more digital uh, formats to do this. So we gotta be on top of our game. And what I would advise your, your uh, clients is that they need to make sure that the lender and the title company that they're interfacing with and the escrow provider, that they know that those people are buttoned down and that they have the right technology and procedures to, to provide a secure, secure transaction. The other thing I would say is it's up to the realtor community to get educated because a lot of the attacks are actually on the realtor email. So they're, they're hacking realtor emails and they're faking um, that they're the realtor when they come in and, and create the fraud. So it's very important that, that each agent in this country gets up to speed on that because the more we facilitate 
allowing the fraud to happen, the more of it there will be. Yes. So I think that second point first got him inspired and then probably just scared the bejesus out of people, Steve, just being frank, you know, like you're like, tech's going to continue to play a huge role. Scary, 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 scary. Is it that scary? Or do you think that most brokerages have solved this? Is it, could this be an independent brokerage issue more than a national franchise player or a national co company? I, I think it's a wide open problem. Um, Particularly, you know, just take NAR with 1.4 million members, mm -hmm. and and then you know you've got another couple hundred thousand people that are not members doing these transactions. Uh, you've got a big base of people that need to be covered here with with good education. I think NAR is trying to do some of that. I know Williston is is doing a lot of that and has really has created a problem uh, called uh, West Protect, which was meant for um, title agents, and now is being expanded to the realtor community. So that realtors, number one, get educated. Number two, they understand what fishing exercises are. We do those exercises. And then if they, if they have Q&A, there are portals now for them to go to. And there's like a 411 instead of a 911, a 411 number that they can call to get advice and help. Those kind of things are becoming more prevalent. But it's up to the realtor community to take this seriously because it's the consumer's money at the end of the day that gets extracted and ends up in a foreign country where it never comes back. Yeah. So if, if, if I'm a consumer, I want to know I'm doing business with someone who's got this figured out. And that's why if I'm an agent or broker, I can use this as a competitive advantage if I have it locked down. Steve, I'm literally writing down market this as a degree of separation. Do you think, do you think that could, I'm just, you know, we're just, this is a podcast guys. So this, you know, I, I had, I sent him three questions so far. I've only asked him one. So, you know, we, you know, Steve and I could just bounce all over the place with some really meaningful insights here. Do you think that that could pose a problem if they marketed that as a degree of separation? No, no. I think that I know that when I'm dealing with any of the places that I transact money with, um, you know, my brokerage account or, yeah or even with uh, an airline or, or um, even through PayPal, I really want to know that it's a secure environment. And how do I do that? It's not easy because how do you know? Well, you're counting, you're counting on, on these big brands to protect you. But if you're using two-factor authentication, if you're changing your password often, if you're doing some simple things, your chances are much better that it's not going to happen. So the problem is that people get lazy. They don't change passwords. The second thing is two-factor authentication is a pain in the butt, but it's really impactful when you do it. So if you put some of these things in and then you tell people that want to do work, you know, that work with you, that here's how I do business. Here's what I do to protect myself. Here's what I do to protect you. And here's how I'd like to interface with you. I think people are going to appreciate that. I agree. I think you've actually really given us like your first two points, social distancing. The, the note that I wrote down is that every agent needs to create a social distancing guideline and then market it to be able to be able to say, these are the things that we, you know, these are the steps that we follow in order to serve you. And then the second one is this degree of separation in terms of really protocols around security, right? The fact that we can do an end-to-end -end transaction, but we can do it in a safe and secure way. 
Um, I think, you know, so far this is, this is awesome. What's number three. I asked you for four or five that I, I know you didn't prepare for, but I know you got. So what's number three. I, yeah, I think number three is using these video platforms and creating a style and a culture around how you do business, particularly, particularly teams. I could see where teams could sit down and formulate a business strategy around using you know, whether it's Zoom or Skype or Blue Jeans or whatever, um, whatever that platform is, interfacing with the loan officer, interfacing with the title officer, you know, bringing all those people into a Zoom room to keep the transaction moving. And you know what? The consumer should have visibility into that portal. So creating a repository, a safe haven, where, which is, um, here's a good analogy for you. So when we do M&A to buy a company, there's generally a room set up, yep. right? And we call it, you know, the digital vault with all the information about the company and you go in and it gets posted in, into the room and you get to go into this room and you get to drag things down. You get to look at balance sheets and P&Ls and, and, and client lists and things like that. Well, why don't we have a, a vault for each transaction where the consumer can go in, the lender can go in, and the realtor can go in, and they're exchanging information, but it's a safe, secure place, and the consumer's able to sign things and to keep things moving, and the appraiser's uploading the appraisals, and that will cut down on telephone tag, it'll make the process more efficient, it'll make it more transparent, and the consumer will feel more empowered. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound a whole lot like what Dotloop set out to do and ultimately did? Everybody wants to wants to do this. Ultimately, yeah. that is sort of the holy grail of being bringing the transaction to yeah. that point where everybody can interface. No one has pulled it off 100% at this point. There are different pieces of it out there. And some of the bigger software companies, people like, you know, MoxieWorks and in, Inside Real Estate, they have yeah. a very powerful platform and brokers can adopt that and get their but, but we, we holistically yet don't have the consumer coming into the environment from the very beginning so that when you transact with a consumer, like if you go to LendingTree today, there's, there's uh, a portal called My Lending Tree, and you sign up and you now can, you, you pick what kind of education you want to get about insurance or personal loans or auto loans or whatever. And you're proactively sent content because you're now part of that portal. When you go to do a transaction, all your data is already there and it's front end loaded to make the transaction simple. You get to monitor your account through there. So just like in an investment account you may have somewhere, yeah. you're able to go in and see each transaction, you know when it's happening. You order a Domino's pizza, you get to see the pizza is being made, it's been in the oven five minutes, it's now in the car on the way to your house. The UPS truck, you know where the truck is, you know approximately what time it's going to hit your driveway. That's where we have to get to. That's after COVID because now some of these pieces that were making that difficult are actually taking shape much faster now. You know, you actually, I think, really had two points in one there. And I want to just reiterate for everybody listening, you know, the way my, my mind always works towards, Steve, you know, help my clients separate themselves from the competition, you know, the, the whole flight to quality that, you know, we know we're seeing during COVID and we will certainly see after COVID. It's interesting. I was like, I thought I'm going to reach out to Mark Davison and the guys at thousand watt for them to start creating the style and brand outline for someone in their zoom sessions. 
right? Like what, what is the appropriate session? What is the message you're trying to demonstrate with your brand, your identity now, since so much of it is going to be done via video. And then secondly, you're exactly right. Like the data room, the vault for every M and a transaction, it's the same thing, you know, dot loop and others have gone there. Um, you know, here's, here's my, here's my question. Who do you think is actually going to be able to finish it? Who do you think is going to take it, take it a hundred percent? And we're talking about really that end to end transaction. Well, I think it's going to be a combination of software platforms and you're going to see people like Inside Real Estate and MoxieWorks and Dot Loop and that on, but it's going to take a combination of combining with the title and settlement service providers. Yeah. Because if you go back even a hundred years, it's always been about opening, opening an escrow or opening a transaction with a lawyer and then the transaction being managed by someone inside of the escrow and title companies because you can't close a transaction without getting you know title cleared and the lender approval so you can have a software platform of any kind you want but it's got to have that integration from the lender yep. and from the title company so it can't it isn't going to be any like one person is going to get that all on their own there has to be a a highway and that highway has to have on and off ramps where all these things can, th this information can come on, go off to whoever needs to sign for it. And yep. then it gets all the way through the closing process. And then somebody gets the advantage, the post-closing opportunity to remarket to the consumer. So I think, again, the pieces are being built and, and there will only be a few winners because this is a big effort to get this done. Yeah. I mean, I think we're looking at companies like Amazon as sort of the ultimate example of, you know, truly a, a frictionless transaction. And we know it can exist in real estate. I mean, you and I, you know, I'm sure you've had the same experience. I went and bought my third Tesla. I did it on my iPhone, right? Literally, you know, boom, boom, boom. Here's all the features. Bam, financing, boom, done, right? All from my phone, you know, you know they would have delivered the car to me, but I wanted the experience back in the day in the BC days of actually going in and grabbing the car. So we know it was you or someone else that said, this is, I'm dating myself here back in the nineties. It's ridiculous that I can buy a hundred or $200,000 car and I could do it in seven or 10 minutes, but I can't buy a house in the same speed. Do you, do you think we're going to get to that? Do you think, do you think DC has, has pushed us hard enough? to make this process easier? Do you think we'll ever get to that kind of speed or what's your prediction in AC? Well, well, first of all, I don't believe comparing buying a car to a home is, is, is a perfect enough. Yes, sure. And, and the reason for, reason for that is because the home is so personal. Yes. It's, it's longer lasting. And to me, cars are disposable. You know, they come and go and you treat them like toys in, in some respects where the home is, is a much more special place. So I think the depth of, of feel for a home is much more important. In other words, if I'm buying uh, an Aston Martin DBS, I don't care if I get it from you know, a dealer in New York or a dealer sure. in Florida or, or whatever. It's the same car, exactly the yeah. same car, and it won't matter. But if I'm buying a home, being on Elm Street versus Oak Street might make a huge difference. And so I think people, I think people yeah. will shorten the process and do a lot more online and all the video will help. But ultimately, 
the vast majority of the population will want to go kick the tires for the one or two homes that they think are bullseye now that they've worked with with an agent online to find that home. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And just for clarity, I was thinking more of just the frictionless side of how easy it is to navigate everything and do the paperwork today is so much easier when you're, you can buy a $300,000 car and it's infinitely easier than buying a $300,000 house. Yes, yes. But so, so what just happened was the, uh, the federal government through the FDIC and the Office of the Control of the Currency and the Federal Reserve just authorized banks that hold their own loans. They don't need appraisals now when they close the transaction. They can wait up to 120 days to get the appraisal. Why did that happen? Because they're trying to make the process more efficient, particularly because of the, the pandemic we're in. That may be something that's sustainable in the long term, but it's yet to be proven. The appraisal communities in upheaval about this because, of course, sure. their position and their importance in the transaction is being diminished by this action. On the other hand, we've already started to move to desktop appraisals and we've started allowing drive-by appraisals in this environment because appraisers don't want to go in people's homes necessarily and people don't even want them coming in. So there's some more efficiency that may come and I think it will come because AI and the appraisal process is very possible particularly if it's um, you know, in, a, in a, a neighborhood that's pretty easy to manage the appraisal process. When you get to real customized expensive homes on a beachfront or whatever, there's always gonna have to be somebody looking at the true value of it because you could miss by you know, millions versus you know, 100,000. Sure. So, so I think that gets streamlined. I think the search process gets streamlined. And by the way, on the title and the settlement services side, it's getting streamlined extensively now. That part of the business was the dustiest and the slowest, I think, to adjust, right? Because it's on the back transactional end, title, you know, title policies, nobody even under, clearly understands, why do I have to have it? Why does it cost this much? They don't understand it. There's actually, by the way, billions of dollars of losses every year in the industry related to title fraud. So it, it is an important element of every transaction. It is now being sped up by e-closings. And by the way, before we even get to an e-closing, the title companies are doing things with the lender community to, to integrate into their process, take time and cost out of the transaction, and to get ready for the closing to become a more efficient process. So we are cutting down on the amount of time and we are digitizing the transaction. Then when it gets down to the e-closing, the real bottleneck was not like signing documents because we now have DocuSign and other, other platforms that we can do that on. The problem was the notarization was still required to be done by an in-person notary for a wet signature. And we're now getting away from that. So you can see how the whole thing is getting compressed and we will shorten the timeline. Will it be hours? No. Will it be days instead of months? Absolutely. Yeah. Steve, kind of going, you know, Looking at, at AC, maybe from a different perspective, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. We've got 1.4 million agents in NAR. When all this shakes out, do you think that number remains the same? Do you think, you know, someone once said, and this is not me, so I don't want a, a complaint email from anybody at NAR, that NAR is full, that NAR actually stood for like non-active realtors, right? So that wasn't me. I'm just quoting something that I heard. Uh, I've got a lot of friends at NAR. 
Um, my point is, do you think we're going to end up with 1.4 million or do you think the flight to quality could see the numbers drop by several hundred thousand because they just couldn't adjust to this? Well, first of all, I think it depends what market you're in and how long the pandemic has its effect on the market. Yeah. Because what we do know is the average number of transactions per agent um, is, is relatively small, right? Yep. A few, few units. So for those agents that fall into that category, <clears throat> they don't have the luxury, unless they're just part-timers and it doesn't matter, they don't have the luxury of sticking it out. They have to find other income. And so my guess is, yes, we will see some consolidation. Um, <clears throat> will it be in the hundreds of thousands? I would think not if this sort of is on the path to recovery that it may be where we only have two or three bad months. Um, I think that enough people will hang in there. They probably already paid their dues. Uh, they've been either on unemployment or found some way to make some side money. So I don't think it, it, it sort of, you know, gets hit real hard, but there absolutely will be a reduction by those people who cannot sustain not having a commission check for two or three months. Yeah. Um, and, and I also think the flight to quality always happens in a real estate uh, recession. You know, one of your, your best uh, uh, clients for years, Maxine, I'll never forget her telling me that she loves it when, when there's a downturn because she just eats up share and, and, and takes over more of her market. And she's proven that time and time again, um, because when, the tough, when, when it gets tough, the tough get going. And yeah. I think that's true. And I know what you, you uh, tell people is right now is a time to dig deep. And yes. it really is. Now's the time to step it up, not to take a vacation. I've heard certain companies in the industry say, hey, we may be busier in December than we are now. So you should probably take a vacation and just go fix your home or do whatever you're going to do right now. Just lay in the backyard and take some time off because there's no business. Well, that's absolutely the wrong attitude. We know that. And the go-getters are going to have more market share when this is over. So even if the number of licenses don't go down dramatically, I think the, the, the change in who's doing the business and who took advantage of this downturn is going to make the biggest difference. Yeah. When this whole thing started, Steve, I remember running past you my first original three rules, safety first, right? Number two, keep the business moving forward, which means innovate, navigate, make sure you're, you know, make sure your partners are right. And the third one is load the cannon. You know, I'm, I'm talking to, you know, agents and brokers and team leaders across the country and, and really now around the world. And, and when you, when you, when you talk to the best people, they're all saying the same thing. Yeah. I dependent upon the state or city that I'm in, you know, transactions are where they're at, right? Like Phoenix, Arizona, they're down a little bit. Upstate New York, they're down a little bit. New York City, decimated, right? In terms of transactions, still happening, but very few. But every one of them says the same thing. I've got 10, 20, 30, 40 listings ready to hit the market, right? When this thing turns, because they didn't stop marketing. They didn't stop prospecting. They didn't stop. They all did it with the right tone, obviously, empathy and understanding and compassion, but they recognize the moment you stop marketing, you're out of business. Well, you know, NER went out to its membership and did a survey, which uh, the data just came out. And, um, you know, they asked buyers, you know, what, what they're going to do. And um, the biggest cohort said that they were simply going to wait a couple months. They were still ready to buy. Yep. They hadn't lost their appetite for buying. They were just going to have to put it on hold for a couple months. And then when they talked to sellers, a number of people did 
pull their properties off the market because they simply didn't want people coming into the home. Right. And they knew that people would want to come into the home and they just didn't want to go through the transaction right now. But they said the same thing. I'm going to put it back on as soon as this calms down and let's get back to business. I think the difference, the only difference will be not whether there's buyers and sellers, the difference will be how we practice social distancing, how yeah. we use technology, and how we get the transaction to, to actually move more efficiently maybe than it did before COVID. I agree. Steven, this, this has been super insightful. And, you know, as always, we could spend, you know, days together just, you know, talking about this crazy industry that we love so much. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm looking at, I've got three pages of notes and I'm the interviewer, right? Just on all the things you're saying. I think the big ahas here, you're exactly right, is creating that social distancing guideline, right? And having that as something that you're, it's on your website. It's something you post in social that you're telling people, this is how we do it now to protect you and to move transactions forward. And then marketing is a degree of separation. The security aspect of digital transactions, I think is something that most people wouldn't even pay attention to, but I think that's a huge opportunity and the video style guide, the brand approach, along with, you know, the transaction vault. There's been a lot of insights here. So as we, as we wrap up for the listeners, um, closing, closing statements is if this was your last podcast ever, which is highly unlikely, but your last podcast ever to the industry, what would you want to share? Well, what I'd like to share is that because I've been in the industry a long time and what I call the home ownership industry again, and looking at the role that everybody plays, take a look at everything from the MLSs to the associations, the real community, the lender, the title companies. I think everybody has made a great effort to attempt to ensure that we can still do transactions. And I see the best agents out there demonstrating to the consuming public that transactions still are getting done and there is a way to get them done. And I think all these participants in the process from the lenders to the title companies are finding ways to work through this together. And if you think about it, we sell over 5 million resales a year and we think it's a clumsy business, but how do you get 5 million deals closed unless you have a good concerted effort by participants in the process to work together to get that job done? I think now we have this great opportunity to step it up a level leverage technology, leverage our learnings from this, and make it an even better process for the consumer who in the, at the end of the day will win because we were smart enough to take advantage of those things. If we don't, then other people will try to supplant the people that are in the process now because the innovation is right on our doorstep more than ever. And for those that wanna take advantage of it and quite frankly work hard, then they're gonna win. I agree, Steve. Thank you so much, man, for your time. And uh, Steve, if people wanted to reach you in some way, shape or form, is there a good email or social account or what's the best way to reach you if they want to connect and ask a question? I think the best way, Tom, would be to use my email, uh, which is capital S O Z O N I A N at Williston, W I L L I S T O N dot com. And I'd be pleased to hear from people. All right, my friend, thank you so much. And uh, as always, for my listeners out there, the goal is to be the most informed agent, the most informed broker, so you can educate your buyers and sellers, educate your teams, and at the end of the day, keep the business moving forward. So keep up the good work, and we'll see you on the next podcast.
If you want more information about this episode, including my show notes, mentions, links, and everything else, make sure you visit tomferry.com slash podcast. That's tomferry.com slash podcast. Thanks again and talk to you soon.